0: Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate.
1: Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. The Toronto Under Construction podcast is sponsored by BCGI, Barron Consulting Group. They're an executive search firm dedicated to the real estate industry. Since 1995, Robert Barron and BCGI have completed over 1,000 searches on behalf of developers, investors, occupiers and lenders across North America. Their scope includes acquisitions, development, asset management, finance, corporate real estate and board directors. BCGI has established partnerships with pension funds, REITs and fund managers searching for talent and is a trusted source for career advice and guidance for real estate professionals in Toronto and across the country. BCGI can be reached at www.bcgi.ca Well, today's a little bit different Tuck Podcast. I'm going to be bringing you an event that I hosted on January 25th in conjunction with EY down on Adelaide Street. So we had a little bit of a uh, bad weather day, uh, but it still went pretty good. So I'm pretty happy that, uh, that you'll enjoy the event and you'll uh, enjoy the insights from our guests. So we're gonna jump right in with the introductions. I know that everyone's uh, anxious to know what's, what's going on. So on our far left there uh, is Derek Deutsch. Uh, Derek is the managing partner, chief operating officer at Center Court. He joined the firm in 2001, is responsible for operational initiatives across the company, including talent recruitment, retention and development, process enhancement and optimization, investments, uh, infrastructure and IT and governance. Prior to joining Courts, Derek held progressively senior roles in public accounting and investment banking across various industries. Derek was involved in a number of marquee Canadian M&A and IPO transactions and led the strategy and acquisitions functions for a private equity-backed food manufacturer. Derek is a chartered professional accountant and chartered financial analyst, and he graduated with a Bachelor of Commerce from the University of Toronto. One fact you might not know is he wrote and played the leading role in a medical sitcom that ran on ABC for four seasons called Doogie Howser, MD. (laughs) 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 Uh, And in the middle, we have uh, Nurez Leilani. Nurez is the president of Mod Developments. He received a law degree from the University of Windsor. He was called to the Ontario Bar in 2006. He also holds holds a master's degree of business administration from Schulich School of Business, where he specialized in real estate finance and development. Prior to attending law school, Mr. Leilani received a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from the University of uh, Western Ontario. I'm sure he's probably doing another degree right now, just to you know, get four or five on the uh, on the list. <laughs> but prior to joining MOD in 2009, he worked in the corporate finance group and commercial real estate group of a prominent Canadian law firm and worked as an account manager for the Toronto Dominion Bank real estate group, where he was responsible for underwriting and managing various residential construction loans in the Condominium and home building sectors. Mr. Lalani currently sits on the Toronto Artscape Foundation Board of Directors. He also sits on the Board of Directors for Urban Squash Toronto. But he's probably best known for his impressive 13-year streak of never canceling a scheduled meeting. And uh, so, let's hope that continues into 2023. I didn't 2023. know this was a roast, but i understand that. He also just had a baby, so uh, um, so congrats
0: on being a first-time father. One week ago, too. one week ago, yes. So <laughs> unexpected, or I would—I didn't know she's supposed to come February 25th. So you can imagine, you'll forgive me. I'm a bit sleep deprived.
1: So. <laughs> he's a, he's a little short on sleep. So, uh, and to my immediate left here is Jeremiah. He's the senior Jeremiah Shames. He is the senior vice president at Colliers and founder of the Colliers Private Capital Investment Group, a team of six professionals specializing in the sale of development land and buildings in their Greater Golden Horseshoe. I know. What's that? Nine now. Nine now. Oh, okay. Nine. He has a proven track record of executing for his clients and maximizing value for the commercial real estate. The Private Capital Investment Group is the top team in Ontario for middle market investment sales. Uh, some noteworthy clients include TASS, Canadian Tire, Silver Hotel Group, Marlin Spring Developments, One Properties, Tricon, and Greybrook, among others. In 2021, he was ranked number one investment advisor in the greater Toronto area, as well as top 20 in the country. One thing that you might not know is he has a 3% body fat, and in 2014, he rode his bike from Toronto to the North Pole, so congrats on that. So... I wanted to get a little bit of audience participation. I'm trying not to make it the same you know, type of boring panel. So if someone's phone rings, they must stand up and we will all boo you. So that's the first thing. The second, if we hear the word NIMBY at any point in time in this presentation, I'd also like you to boo. So, just a little bit of uh, a little bit of participation. And I do have the Don't Be a NIMBY t shirts for sale for $20 outside. <laughs>
2: hey!
1: See? See? That's very good. That's very good. You guys get it. So, we are recording. You can see there's multiple mics up here. We are recording this for a future podcast release. And I wrote a few more dad jokes in here. So, I at least need some courtesy laughs. If I... if, if if I give a little pause, that was supposed to be a joke. So we'll, we'll we'll need a little bit of a little bit of laughs here. So, anyways, let's let's just jump let's jump right into it. So first first question for uh, for Jeremiah, in January of 2023, uh, EY uh, con- conducted a CEO CEO sorry easy for me to say Outlook survey that finds that U.S. CEO- CEOs universally anticipate a recession. The quarterly CEO survey finds 99% of U.S. CEOs expect an economic downturn, but roughly half said the recession will be mild domestically. So mild. I'm not sure if we're talking mild as in, you know, white guy's potato recipe or, you know, Indian <laughs> restaurant. So we'll, 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 we'll see. So let's you're talking to a lot of vendors. You're talking to yeah. a lot of developers on a regular basis. Let's just start really, really wide. What's the consensus? Is it is it pencils down for twenty twenty three?
3: Uh, certainly, there are people who do have their pencils down. Um, I, I think you're seeing a lot of people have been through recessions before. I mean, the three of us have not been through a true recession. Which is the funny part about this? But uh, you see a lot of uh, groups who have, you know, started in the '80s and through the '90s, so they're being very careful. They think the time is early for any kind of distressed issues happening in the market. So that is one segment of the market. But if you look at the market and say, uh, break it down to 10 buyers in today's market, that's about two to three of the buyers. You have another two to three who are sitting there trying to find opportunistic type deals. So they're still looking for deals. They're being very careful with their underwriting. Um, They are continuing to look and turn over rocks, which I think is probably true of the two gentlemen to my left. And then you have, you know, effectively three to four other buyers who aren't sure which way the market is going. So you kind of have this sit and wait approach where you're trying to figure out, okay, exactly where is the market going to move and what is the consensus? So, and I was down in Texas earlier, um, late last year rather, with a number of investment guys and and some funds and uh, an investment broker from New York who's been in the market since I think... 19, early 1980s said something really interesting, which was uh, the fact that when you look back at all the, the data across you know, 20 to 50 years, when you look at interest rates and you kind of compare them to where the market is going, you've seen effectively not a true correlation, but really the only correlation is the balance between, I guess, what you could call fear and greed is in the abundance of capital. So when there is an abundance of capital, which there still is right now, um, you see a little bit of that fear and greed being more of a balance. Right now we see more of the fear playing out, but because there is still so much capital in the market, you know that sentiment could change very quickly and then you will have buyers move more aggressively. But right now, most buyers are being opportunistic. They're being very careful. You have a few who, which are utility-based buyers who are looking for specific things to buy. Um, with what we're dealing with here right now, which is mostly the land market. In the land market, um, as long as they're structuring into the deals, you still have people buying. But again, you know, if we use that analogy of 10 buyers in the market, three are really active, and the rest are kind of waiting and seeing, and then maybe some are pessimistic
1: interesting interesting well on that uh on that pessimistic note there's been a lot of you know discussion in the media about uh, about cancel projects um but there's a lot of confusion i guess about what a canceled project is and what is just a delayed launch um you know center court I'm, i'll obviously put this question to derek was one of the first to launch out of covid you know what's your what's your strategy in 2023 are you looking to launch or are you one of those uh you know delayed projects guys
2: yeah. So look, I think um, you know, similar to the COVID, you know, scenario, we continue to underwrite very conservatively. So we've got the leeway to sort of look at the market. We monitor the market very, very closely. Um, you know, the interesting part of you know, our, our strategy with one ninety-nine church is it sometimes it's great to be in a market where there's not much other noise from other competing launches. And so the way that we look at twenty twenty three is we're gonna do all the legwork. We've got a very interesting and and uh, a development pipeline that we're really proud of. We think it's gonna be really exciting when it comes to launch. And so we're going to do the legwork to make sure that we're able to execute when there's a window to go do it, just like we did with 199. So, you know, start of the year has been relatively quiet. Certainly buyers are looking, uh, you know, scrutinizing deals more and looking for, for value when they're making their, you know, investment decisions on individual units. But, um, you know, we're, we're still, you know, looking at it as let's be active, let's be prepared and, um, and, and be ready to go. Perfect. Perfect. So, so Nurez,
1: new condo prices in the Greater Toronto Area on a per square foot basis have gone up for 26 consecutive years. So eight years before Derek was born. Um, and you've obviously you've taken advantage of that at, at, at several of your projects. Um, and some of the pricing obviously that you've achieved has been, been almost record setting for those, those neighbourhoods. So you have any concern about the ability of those, uh, those
0: buyers to close in a, in a higher interest rate environment? So, I think, as it relates to our 55 Charles project, which I think you know is our newest project in the market, you know we're well over 95 percent sold. Uh, that project isn't going to be closing until Q3 of 2024, and hopefully, you know what we're the turbulent times we're in now will be a bit more normalized at that time. Um, I do feel, generally speaking, that there's a bit of risk as it relates to. Uh, purchasers and their ability to keep up with their deposit schedule. Because as we all know, higher interest rates affect everyone across a broad spectrum, including you throw in the mix of inflation. um, And it's not rocket science. People's costs are going up. And I think you start drilling down and making sure that the things that are most important, like your principal residence or your car payment or your kid's tuition, takes a front burner. And perhaps you now say, I've got that next 5% payment come up and you know I think that developers are going to be getting some calls over the next few quarters about that deposit schedule and perhaps purchasers trying to work some things out. Uh, We haven't seen it yet but it is something I am uh, I am concerned about. Um, You know I think closing risk now uh, the real canary in the coal mine or the comparative analysis is looking at the resale market. So we don't have any projects right now where we have that occurring, but uh, larger developers than ourselves or developers who just happen to have projects that are going to be pl- facing you know, closing times in the next two, three, four quarters. You know, I think there is, uh, it's yet to be seen. Um, I don't want to use all these catchphrases, the other shoe to drop and all that kind of stuff. But I do think that we're early days. Um, and I think, you know, the anecdotal evidence is out there a little bit right now, but it's anecdotal. Uh, it's not, you know, the house is on fire. I think uh, the wait and see approach, just like Jeremiah's mentioning on acquisitions, I think people are also wanting to see those deals crystallize, um, people coming up with perhaps more equity than they thought because their appraisals didn't come through. and. We'll see how we'll see how it pans out, but I think uh, there's a lot more things to be acknowledged in the next couple quarters. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's was just it's talking a fun to cash in refi, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was talking to an investor the other day who's he's gung ho to buy some of these assignments. So he's looking for uh, for projects where there might be five, six, seven investors that uh, that can't close and he can close on their behalf, and uh, and he's confident about the market moving forward. So it's one person's opinion, but. <laughs> Anyway, so let's you know 25 uh, beeps uh, increase in uh, interest rates today. Uh, you know, it's in, which is interesting, obviously, because the Bank of Canada said they were not going to raise interest rates for some time. You know, uh, uh, 18 months ago. So interesting how they've uh, they've switched gears. Um, again, you know, their 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 mandate, their focus is that uh, 2% target inflation rate. Uh, interesting enough that that. Some of you might not know that there's actually no science behind the two percent inflation target. It was just a uh, central banker in New Zealand said we'd like to have uh, you know stable prices. Let's let's set a rate at one to two percent inflation target, and uh, many other nations followed that. So quite uh, quite interesting that uh, you know two percent, two percent, two percent. I find that I'm saying like two percent every day in every conversation with someone. I think only person saying two percent more than me is the friggin' milkman. So <laughs> anyway, from you know. From your perspective, Jeremiah, um, you know how has how has you know interest rates impacted the market? Are we going to see you know you touched on a bit in the first question, but are you are anticipating more uh, distressed deals from uh, you know developers that bought land at the peak of the market and can't carry, and um, you know what do you see about the, uh, the you know the biggest impact of, of of rate increases? Well, I think
3: it's no surprise that as developers you take on. Um, Debt that is not obviously structured in any kind of long term way um, until you stabilize. So, you know, developers are generally most at risk. But what we've seen, if you look at the data, actually, 2021 was the most, uh, um, we had the most volume of distressed deals. It was about, you know, about 10% of the market at highs, which was fairly high, but, you know, there was a lot of workouts coming from 2020. 2022 did not have as much. It was roughly uh, uh, just in the low 8% range. And we haven't seen anything yet. But, you know, speaking from my own team, we have a number of power of sales, uh, some receiverships, which are more, um, you know, kind of divorce of a partnership. We haven't seen a massive amount of distress yet. So again, I keep hearing if I use that analogy of buyers, you know, a lot of the more senior buyers, the the ones who have been through the 80s and 90s, you know, keep saying it's early days. So I think that is true. But when you do look at the data, there has not been enough distress to call it anything significant. And to speak more uh, specifically about your question about how it affects buyers, I mean, it totally depends on the structure, right? Like interest rates are the most sensitive to an investment sale in the multifamily sector. You know That sector has the lowest margin of error when it comes to interest rates. So you've seen um, the third quarter drop was 89% uh, for the multifamily uh, dollar volume amount from last year. So it was a significant drop. Industrial actually had a 75% drop. Land was closer to 50%. So when you look at the different asset classes, you understand that the interest rates are gonna have a different effect across the board. Um, when you specifically look at development land, uh, we always joke uh, on our team, we actually are getting hats made that said, "That say, make the vendor take back great again. <laughs> because, <laughs> because we are quite literally every day saying, well, what about a vendor take back? Or what about a seller take back, right? This is the only way that we're effectively getting land deals done today. And I'm sure these two gentlemen can tell you, what is the point of looking at a regular deal unless it is the best deal you're seeing in the market at a reasonable price, why would I not take a structured deal? And so you have across the board owners of land who do want to transact are looking at a low liquidity market. And they're saying, well, you know, effectively most of the, you know, Schedule One banks are pulling back their land acquisition loans. So now the private guys have come up, but that land debt is, you know, Close to 13 to 15 percent, sometimes at 55 percent loan to value. Like this is very aggressive deals, right? So, so in that effect, land development specifically is very, uh, very much affected by the interest rate environment. But for the guys that are buying land, they're just using different assumptions in their model, and so they're using heavier debt service cost. They're looking a little bit longer out. They're decreasing the revenue targets, as I'm sure you know, Ben, because this is all you do, uh, is analyze that revenue side of the market. And so you know, effectively, what we're seeing is landowners that do want to transact, trying to bridge the gap between that debt side, and then buyers looking to be very sensitive with how they underwrite those assumptions. Because you know, as we've been saying here so many times, who knows what's going to happen? So let's be prudent and effective in underwriting the site, and let's look for structure. So, like, one last point is most of the last deals we've done have been uh, vendor take back mortgage in the range of uh, 70 to 90%. Wow. Yeah. So, like, if you want to sell in today's market, you will have to hold some kind of uh, financing as a vendor. Unless your site is very, very reasonably priced, has a margin of error or is, you know, maybe say the best location
1: in Toronto. Interesting. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to a question for Derek here, just because you know, talking a little bit about the the model of of, of investing in land. But how about the you know the condo investor model? When we t- I had had Gavin on the uh, the Toronto Under Construction podcast, and we talked about how Centre Court was one of the first you know developers to really understand the outside broker community, and how that's a that's really a partnership uh, between the developer and the investors. And If you want to be a successful developer in the long term, you have to, you know, ensure that the, uh, you know, the investors make money. And ten years ago, you'd see realtors creating nice, uh, you know, cash flow calculations for prospective pre-construction condo investors. But you, you know, obviously, you don't see a lot of that anymore, as a model doesn't look it doesn't look very good. Um, and many inve- investors are buying just for capital appreciation. But higher interest rates, slower uh, resale appreciation uh, has, you know, kind of bit into that. So as a an accountant, as a financial analyst, uh, as a TV doctor... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you I'm, think I'm you, glad
2: you didn't <laughs> the Prince Harry look-alike. That's good. Do
1: you, do you think the investor model is broken? You know, Is is that something that you have a discussion with your, your team about?
2: Yeah, look, I, I think... Um, I think it's probably a simplification of what's actually happening in the investor mind. You gotta think about context and the parameters that they're using to make their investment decisions. So you could talk about use, like is it something that they're buying for their kids? Is it something that they're gonna be an end user on? Is it something that they're parking their capital because it's an alternative to opening up an active business, right? And so there's that whole frame of mind of why they're making that investment decision in the first place and what alternatives they had for their capital. The other, the other piece is what is their investment horizon, right? Like, how, how are they thinking about, you know, is it a short-term, is it long-term? And like any other investment, if you're buying at what seems to be a pretty tough time in the market, if you've got a short-term horizon, then, you know, your model probably won't look that good. But if you're thinking long-term and you're thinking about the fundamentals of, you know, why that investment makes sense, you know, infrastructure, transit, uh, low supply. You could even think about, you know, replacement costs of that asset, uh, and general economic and and immigration growth. Like those fundamentals will make sense to that investor. So everyone's sort of looking at it differently. If you want to take a super simple view of what the model looks like, you know, interest rates, yes, they're rising, so that carrying cost is getting to be more expensive. Uh, rents are also rising, giving a little bit of an offset. Um, you know, they're looking at that horizon decision, so that's sort of that exit you know, that exit assumption, what are they going to exit out? What is that capital bump going to be? But, you know, really importantly is what you buy it at, just like you would look at public equities, like what are you making that dollar commitment out the gate? And so I think what you're seeing is, you know, uh, uh, purchasers, investors are, are looking and scrutinizing at value uh, at the price that they're buying into today, maybe, maybe, you know, likely much more to a greater degree than they were six, 12, 18 months ago when everything was sort of rising. Uh, and they probably felt they had to put less scrutiny because that back end of the model felt really good. And so I think, you know, the model, if you've if you've got a really short term horizon, yes, the model probably doesn't look great. If you're thinking about the long term fundamentals, you know, that that model still still works. And that's why people will still continue to buy uh, condos for investor reasons. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, we saw the numbers come up. That was a great for, answer, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really great answer. We got that on tape. So, um, you know, we saw the the immigration numbers eight hundred sixty five thousand net increase over the last year in Canada. Really, the highest that we've seen. Uh, um, you know, since the uh, since the, the since the war period. So, just unbelievable growth there. And uh, and obviously, rents are rents are taking off. And and uh, that's a that's a question that I have. But to to, to Nerez, because you know, obviously, I've done some some work for you some. Condo studies, rental studies, um, and so you're you're underwriting both. Um, and rental rates, as as Derek mentioned, are are you know going up as fast as the blood pressure of environmentalists when they hear about uh, Doug Ford's Greenbelt plan. Um, sorry, that was a bit of a stretch. <laughs> Can you address the you know the key themes around rental right now? Higher rates, uh, you know, slower condo market, uh, clawback of DC increases uh, on rentals. You know, and I know you have uh, institutional partners, you know, what are they thinking about the rental market? I know it's a lot of themes there,
0: but. <clears throat> so you package a lot in that question. I'll start with the, yes, we run two verticals. Uh, so we are obviously a condo developer, purpose-built rental developer. From the get-go, I've never been able to, and the team has never been able to make the numbers on a, an individual site work as it relates to the comparison between a purpose-built rental and a for sale condo. Um, For a number of factors, we can talk about the increased equity requirements. Um, I can go down that path with you. I can talk about capitalized rates of rents versus what we sell on a per square foot basis for a condo and say, today's $4.50 rents, Just don't, you know, they work up to eight, nine hundred bucks roughly for a for for sale condo. So it doesn't even cover the cost. You give an example of the actual equity requirements between condo and rental. Sure. I I can tell you, I can tell you, you require in the capital stack about 35% equity versus about 10 to 12% equity for a condo deal. And um, I forget who was saying, I think perhaps it was Derek. Um, uh, Yes, Ben's question to Derek that, uh, you know, purchasers are our uh, partners in the deal uh, in a condo transaction. Purchasers are our partner. Uh, they're a source of funds that we can ensure and use as as, uh, as uh, towards the development of the project. So, beyond that, the comparison, I think I'll start with the invest or sorry, the institutional side of our relationships. We look at both because. Often as a good partner, you are uh, the tail the dog a little bit, and our institutional capital partners want us to look at purpose-built rental. Uh, in the instance of a pension fund, they have long-term liabilities. That is their key objective to ensure that they're satisfying those liabilities for all the pensioners that uh, they represent. And the long-term income stream that a purpose-built rental provides it's pretty simple, right? After expenses, you can satisfy all those long-term liabilities that you know you have these pension liabilities satisfy. So um, they're often pushing us in that direction. Uh, I'm sure the gentleman from UI here will tell us that, uh, will explain better than I can, that pension funds in Canada and Ontario have you know certain tax uh, benefits of being a pension fund that allows them good tax status that they are always worried about and do not want to be seen as disposing in land. So. Um, it's a gray area. It's, I wish it was more defined. But often they're asking us to build purpose built rentals and move away from condos because condos are disposition of land on a fractionalized basis. And they're always worried, depending which way the wind is blowing, about their tax status being challenged. So I think to. to to get back to the core of your question, when we look at an individual site, especially what MOD does, which is always looking at trophy assets, much like Derek and his team, and most downtown developers, were looking for the key things like transportation, uh, you know, the, the nearness of transportation and services and so forth. Um, you know, it always pencils out better as a condo, but uh, you're, you're trying to satisfy the desires of your institutional capital partner sometimes. Interesting. So, Jeremiah, you know, you're obviously selling a lot of high-density sites.
1: What percentage of, uh, of your buyers are actually considering rental and and, uh, and any indication from, from your talks with uh, condo developers that they're considering switching to, to rental tenure? Yeah. It, traditionally, it's been 15%.
3: Now it's maybe about 25%. I think what is happening now is people are doing exactly what you're doing is they're starting to do the calculation between condo and rental. We had year-over-year year growth of roughly 16%, I think, at rents in Toronto. So that equation is starting to make a little more sense. And with CMHC Plus program, it can be a little bit better in terms of your requirements of equity, right? I mean, because, you know, 7 to 12% of your equity versus 35 is a drastic change, right? So, you know, for those who are looking for that 2x multiple, looking for that 15%, IRR, it's uh, you know a drastic change. So most of uh, the buyers that are looking at rental, really, the economics still have a very difficult time to make sense of it. You're only seeing rental work in areas, generally speaking, um, in very prime areas of downtown, where it's pension fund backed capital, or in the 905, close to transit, where the percentage land loan versus the revenue is actually much better. Right, because you have these funny little buckets of locations like, uh, for instance, South Mississauga, where the land value is actually quite low comparatively to the rent that you can get. Mm. So you effectively have to analyze that ratio across the entire GTA. And you notice that it makes sense in different um, neighborhoods like, say, South Mississauga. Uh, Brampton has not been tested a lot, but I suspect it works quite well there. Um, Hamilton, downtown Hamilton, the numbers work really well. They actually had the highest rent growth in all of Canada last year at almost 7% um, on just in place rents. Um, so, it, you know, generally speaking, it's not made economic sense because condos are so such a lucrative business, right? You know, and I'm oh, sorry, I'm not even talking into my mic here, but um, I think you will start to see this change a little bit more as rents have really increased, and as the revenue side for condo decreases, and as a lot of the condo developers and a lot of the people who have made so much money in this business start to look at longer-term cash flows and how to you know keep that in place when they're looking for you know generational type assets. Sure, sure.
1: Well, that's a good a good segue into uh, into a question for Derek. You know, many low-rise developers, you know, build out a pipeline of of, of future development sites that can be 20 years out. Um, even buying stuff in the green belt before it's approved, but we won't talk about that. Um, you know, and, and for a lot of us, you know, we can't even imagine, you know, 20 years out from today. But for some context, uh, that's when the Eglinton LRT is going to open. So just uh, just for you guys to know. Um, how is center court, uh, thinking about building out their pipeline? Is it, is it five years or are you guys thinking about buying high density lands for, for development in 15, 20 years from now?
2: Yeah, no, we, um, we're certainly looking at both single tower and master plan communities with with uh you know well in excess of five year <laughs> timelines you know i think that's fairly natural for any uh developer that's continuing to look to evolve uh and that wants that sort of robustness in their pipeline uh to make you know what what can be very very lucrative and great deals um and especially in this sort of market where You know, as Jeremiah said, there's some buyers that um, do have access to capital and others don't, and others will be on the margin on the sidelines. I think for us in particular, you know, we've been fortunate uh, we closed on a $400 million fund uh, last year to fund, uh, you know, new acquisitions uh, and being very opportunistic uh, with some of our developments. And uh, so, you know, we think it's a pretty good market out there to be shopping for, you know, really unique assets, especially in emerging nodes, where we think that they've got a great long-term horizon on them, and you know, there's probably not going to be a ton of other buyers, or you've got, you know, uh, different dynamics at play where you can introduce a different structuring, and so it's sort of an interesting opportunity for us to get uh, to get attractive deals. Interesting, interesting.
1: So, so Nurez, let's uh, let's uh, switch gears a little bit. Um, you've you know, uh, obviously completed some of the best heritage restoration pro- projects in Toronto. Um, and, uh, and those integrations have increased in value, uh, increased the value of your, your projects. What do you think about heritage being used to restrict development uh, in the city? And generally, you know, just give me your opinion on the state of uh, the entitlement process. So a little bit on the heritage and how that impacts value and generally just getting uh, projects
0: approved uh, these days so i was hoping you would have mobile mics because there's no one better than gary switzer my partner here (laughs) to speak about the heritage aspect so i'll butcher it but i'll do a bit of a bit of a discussion on the heritage stuff i think from a broad basis we believe in the history of toronto Um, so we've always looked at heritage sites as a real positive because we think that we a world-class city you deserve to give a nod to uh heritage that deserves to be preserved um you know, I think the batch listings and things that have happened in North York and councillors, you know, you acquire a site and all of a sudden they come back and say, well, now it's designated miraculously, retroactively. Um, I think that nonsense has to stop. And I think the, the provincial government has, has mandated that it will and has made some strong commentary and policy that will stop. Um, I also think it's a big part of a commitment to, you know, sustainability. Um, we've, we've worked it into our projects as it made sense. But it also, you know, we take pride in what we develop, much like uh, my colleagues up here, and 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 I think that. People that play in the downtown space, um, not only are you getting an extra buck, but it, it, it ends up creating a much better city, a much walk, much much more walkable city and, and pleasant for everyone, not only just the residents, but the people that are impacted and therefore, you know, have all of a sudden a new rush of a 60 story tower in your, in your backyard. Um, you know, I think we owe it to the city to do it that way. In terms of your second part of your question, what's happening with the city, um, you know, everyone's, everyone's talking about what they think is gonna happen. And much like Jeremiah's comment about early days as it relates to land transactions i think we're early days um with the political atmosphere uh in in our city because there's a lot of talk and um, I think that uh, everyone might be saying, "Oh, Bill 23, and you know, more homes and 1.5 million, and all these catchphrases." But I think when you really get into the grind, I've, over my 13 years, I've seen um, dealing with the planning department, um, even though they're a creature of the municipal, or sorry, of the province, and um, the bureaucrats are they're slow moving. And um, I don't want to sound negative. Uh, I hope I'm wrong, but between the mayor's new development office that they're opening up, and all this new legislation and regulations, I hope things change. Uh, I say, I'll say I'm cautiously optimistic, but I do still think that for the most part, developers through the rezoning process, especially in downtown nodes, are going to be banging their heads against the wall and trying to figure it out um, using provincial appeal bodies when necessary. Um, but I think I, I, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. Interesting. Interesting.
1: So. So Jeremiah, you recently had a discussion with Adam Vaughn on Twitter. Uh, you know, he's obviously best known for being a city TV reporter and former cartoonist. Um, and you were talking about the number of new development approvals there are in the City of Toronto. And he says there are 150,000 approved units just sitting there waiting to be developed. Um, from your perspective, are there a lot of developers just sitting on fully approved sites purposely, you know, restricting supply uh, in order to drive prices higher? (laughs) Uh, For
3: context, I I had just posted, you know, the fact from 1971 to to now, when you look at this, this, I guess the streetscape, the aerial of uh, the city of Toronto, it's a massive, drastic change. And he just had commented, this comment saying that, you know, the city's done a great job in approving all these projects, and therefore we don't need more housing, we have everything approved. I think when you dive into that comment, it's a little bit of a fallacy and it's maybe not as well understood, but our zoning laws are from 50 years ago, right? So anything that you touch is going to be changed because the city is, I guess, effectively used it as a function of control and- Well, everything, everything's a rezoning. Yeah. like No, as of, as of
0: right is like two stories. <laughs> Three <laughs> no. stories, let's go on.
3: We actually, I mean, funny enough, we sold a a mid-rise site as a retail plaza on Kingston Road, and it had an as-of-right of of 11 stories. And when you're looking up the zoning, we were kind of like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's kind of funny. The city has this old zoning. And when you look at any prudent landowner, when they go through the rezoning phase, you know they're effectively trying to rezone their land as a prudent asset manager to ensure that they've crystallized what their density can be or what their value can be right so they're not by getting a, an application done you're not effectively saying hey we need to build tomorrow but it could be encumbered with a a lease that's 10 years it could be encumbered with a heritage building that might not you know be viable right now economically speaking to build there's a massive amount of reasons here that you could not build that. And so most of the approvals that are happening from say, you know, these two fine gentlemen here, they're the ones who are pushing forward and actually building right away because their capital stack requires them on an IRR basis, which is the time value of money metric in order to actually build. So most active builders today who are getting the approvals from the city and receiving the most pushback are actually the ones who are delivering our houses for everyone to live in. So when you do look at landowners who, and, you know, recently I, uh, with a client, did a five property portfolio with Republic Developments to uh, rezone his portfolio. And he was just a prudent landowner who said, listen, we want to get ahead of inclusionary zoning. You know, we don't want to have something on the site which will decrease the value of our land. So, you know, they're putting in development almost 3 million square feet. He's not necessarily going to build that right away. But When we look at again, like Center Court and Mod Developments, you know these are the ones who are actually preparing housing for the market. And you know I heard uh, Murray Goldman actually say years ago. He said, "In fact, as a building industry, we are just a service-oriented industry. We are giving a service to homeowners, and they're the ones who are actually going to live in these units. So we have to be good as a service industry. And if it takes longer in order to provide this service, we have to write that cost in, and ultimately that cost gets sent down." to the consumers. So I, I just say to Adam Vaughn into this comment, like it's, there's a massive dichotomy between what the city and the province and the policymakers believe um, and the people who are actually building the product, you know, that's the tricky part. And so I think, I think it takes many people like yourselves listening tonight, um, the ability to actually give education to these policymakers to say, listen, like at the end of the day, it requires time and money to get something built. And then we're not even gonna talk about the labor pool because that's a whole other issue. And we can only build 15,000 units a year, 16,000 units a year. Um, But I think it's important that policymakers actually sit back, come into the shoes of a developer, look at what the pro formas look like, look at where their capital comes from, look at how they find revenue from the end user, and actually understand that like, most of the time, the developers who are delivering that housing, they're not the ones trying to take advantage of the city. They're just trying to deliver a product to an end person, to a service person. So that fallacy, I hope, uh, continues to be uh, Downplayed, and I hope that education increases. Yeah,
1: I mean, you, you obviously deal with many more landowners than I do, but occasionally landowners come to me and say, a developer has 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 come and talked to me about uh, buying my property, I, I want to know the the value of it from uh, from a non broker. No offense, uh, but some of them say, hey Ben, should I? go through the development process. And I said, well, if you have the money, of course, because you never know what next government is going to come in and change the rules, and you won't be able to get as much value out of their property. So I think there are a decent amount of properties out there where the landowner just got approvals in place just to make sure that they they got that value and they did their value wasn't locked out. So, But I definitely don't think it's 150,000 units. So we have no, to do we,
3: so. It, we, we could have, actually do a study probably to figure this out. Honestly, you and I. But I, I, I would on, I would say a point to this: you do get a lot of landowners trying to rezone land, not having been specialized. And then... Yeah, I was just gonna make a comment, but I figured. And then it out. you see,
1: you know, I recommend that Derek they, and, they get a study from me first and talk to a reputable planner, well, which there are many that, in the crowd today.
3: Not only that, I'm sure you have some funny uh, stories of you know getting a zoned site and looking at what the the floor plans look like of a nice. Z shaped unit. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of I, I would just caution that, you know, it's a hyper specialized process. And there's a reason why, you know, Center Court and Mod are so good at what they do because they look at these floor plans, they rezone sites every year. And, it, you, you know, in fact, you do get landowners doing this, but the smartest landowners actually hire the developers to either partner with them or do carried interest or, you know, something in the form of. You know, usually coming to me trying to figure out who can right. actually give them some kind of value for it.
2: Yeah. You've also probably got a subset of of landowners who are developers who purchase land at the peak price of the market and, and need a price to actually make the project viable. And so they can't launch today because those projects aren't viable and those will work out over time uh, just because no one wants to have carrying costs for forever and ever. It won't be supportable.
1: Not at 13%. <laughs> so Derek, let's go back to you um, in, in 2019, or sorry not 2019. 2009, following the financial crisis, many developers indicated the capital dried up very quickly and requirements needed to qualify for construction financing became much more stringent. Uh, when you're going home and checking your answer machine, you got, you have calls from lenders on there? you know what, what's in, any insight you have on the availability of debt? Equity, construction financing. What's what what, what what's your take on uh, on the financing availability right now? Does Doogie Hauser have
2: a voice <laughs> <on> at home? <laughs> no, I'm, <laughs> I'm stuck. I've got a pager. I'm stuck <laughs> in the landline. Thank you, thank you. Uh, no, there's no, there's no voicemails, uh, that I've got <laughs> from lenders, uh, uh, doing default notices, but no, I, I think, um, look, we're fortunate, as I mentioned, we raised capital last year. And so the equity piece, uh, you know, we've been very fortunate that we have that reserve available to us, but certainly on the construction financing side, um, you know, on the tier one lenders, I think it's coming down to the relationships you have and the track record that you have at those institutions. And that dictates a lot, uh, and how they look at, you know, Know, whether you're worth, uh, allocating credit to. And so, you know, they're obviously scrutinizing business plans more and they're scrutinizing guarantors. And, and so, you know, they are taking a harder look and it's, it's not as uh, quick to approve, um, but on the flip side, if you're not in that pool uh, who have good those good relationships uh, with tier one lenders, don't have that track record or on the margin or would have been on the margin in the past, then certainly financing from that group of lenders is gonna be extremely hard to get. Um, and I think, you know, Coming from the pension plans and and the insurers, if that's your source of capital, you know they're certainly looking at rebalancing their portfolios, revaluating how they look at development risk and the risks that they're willing to take on and and I think that's also you know starting to close on that side for for financing, so it is a much harder market to to execute in interesting interesting
1: um Nuras, let's 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 jump into underwriting. You know, I think there's a few developers out there that I call them the the land dominatrixes. So basically they're tying up land, they're flogging the deal, and then they're they're dropping it. They're letting it go. What are your thoughts on on land acquisition in 2023? Are you taking a conservative? Are you taking an aggressive approach? And and maybe just even comment on on the previous question to Derek
0: about financing availability. So I think both my colleagues up here have addressed that, Jeremiah. Especially, um, I do think um, from from a developer side or acquisition side, um, I think you know what we're looking at right now is uh, in a nutshell similar to what Derek's or sorry, what uh, Jeremiah said. You're looking at structure. You're looking at top line price. I I will add one piece, because Jeremiah covered it quite well, is that when you're talking about that structure, most of us are trying to tie it to a milestone that significantly de-risks the project. So if we're asking for paper, we're saying it comes due the earlier of meeting all our conditions for construction financing or some sort of event of de-risking that we can then use construction financing to take out that VTB, right? So I think that kind of wraps up what, how deals are getting done now, right? I think top line numbers are very important. You also have well capitalized landowners in the city that are saying, I'll wait for the next run or it's been as of t- today, eight, increase, uh, eight increases in you know, less than a year. It's gonna turn the other way we don't need the money right now. A lot of them are owned, you know, second generation, third generation as families are all voting. And so I think, I think you're going to see some distress sales. We usually shop for AAA locations, just like my colleague here. So those are going to be harder to find because they're usually well capitalized or there's still opportunistic capital. They're saying like those type of sites, we'll do, we'll, we're still doing some business. So, um, you know, I think from a, I think the first part, you know, when you're saying about tying up and looking and so forth, no one wants to waste the resources of their office, right? So to go and tie it up, put your team to work, uh, no lawyers and, and planners are giving anything away for free. So dead deal costs are something we're all very sensitive to, and um, you also don't want to be. You also don't want to create an environment in your office with your team thinking that you know we're just chasing and dropping, right? So I think uh, Jeremiah is, is a great example of brokers that when it is a, a call to action or like a, you know a proposal call there, or they're bringing it to the market, they've done all the homework. So you know when you dig in but for you know you kind of have underwritten it before putting it through DD so if you're tying it up into those those Circumstances, you're probably going to transact. You don't want to waste people's time. Um, and the surprises aren't my fault, by the way. Pardon so, me. The landowner didn't tell me. He's just trying to butter you up, Jeremiah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, yeah, who's
3: getting but, the first call. Probably. Yeah, look,
0: sure. I think we've tied up sites in the past. Over, over, you know, if you look at some of the sites, I think um, it's a, it's, it's again, I'll, I'll revert to the fact that you don't really want to tie things up when it's an off-market deal. There, you're promised a whole a ball of wax. People think it's easy as just saying, well, if in this block it's 40 stories you're gonna get 40 stories I wish it was that easy I wish it was that predictable and so you need to put things under contract to understand the nuances of a particular site Um, you know Charles is a great example that what the setbacks were for the buildings that were developed right beside us on both sides were different for us Um, there was no rhyme or reason why the planning department pursued it and we had to bang our head against the wall and make some changes to make it work because we were already we'd already acquired the site so um, yeah I hope that kind of answers your question Basically, all I heard is you have. It's better to buy from me than off market.
1: <laughs> I think I heard that too. <laughs> um, so Jeremiah, you know, you know that I do a, a land report with uh, with Batory Management, and and the data shows that high density land prices have been really trending down for the past year. You know, obviously some of that is is higher construction costs, higher development charges. Uh, and, you know, at one point, it was the expectation of uh, exclusionary uh, inclusionary zoning. Uh, um, and the expectation of, uh, of of future rent growth now is is probably muted. Um, you know, just give us your thoughts on on high density land prices and uh, and and how they might differ from, you know, uh, the suburban suburban market. Uh,
3: yeah, that's a good point. I mean, to give some context, Toronto's one of Toronto's most uh, the highest velocity asset class is land. Um, in twenty twenty one, we had eight billion of land sales in the GTA it was 550 transactions. Last year we had 7.4 billion of land sales about 518 transactions. So this is a very robust market. Even like industrial was close, but all the other asset classes are, you know, down in the 2 to 4 billion range. So Toronto is a land market, you know, for lack of a better word. And when you look at Across that eight billion, about thirty-three percent, roughly, is in the four-one-six area in the old city of Toronto. So, um, when you look at the value of land, you're effectively looking at, you know, obviously the revenue, and you're looking at the res- the cost of what it is to build, and then you're looking at kind of the residual that you can pay for it, which is, you know, how a lot of these uh, groups are underwriting. But I think um, the way that land is starting to change in our market today is really causing a, a kind of a second look for landowners. And Norrez kind of mentioned this. You have uh, really a, a dissect of two type of landowners. You have someone who doesn't have to sell and has a very low land base, maybe high capital gains cost. Um, and then you have a second owner who is maybe an active owner, an investor. They syndicate their equity they maybe wanna do something with the land, they entitle it. And so between those two types of owners, you're gonna have most of the transactions come out during the year. And I think right now what is happening is you're trending towards that latter landowner where there's someone who may want to sell because they're looking for um, a large event in order to get equity back to their investors. So when you look at that market, that's translating to how the, the cost of land is is today. And roughly across the board, we're about 20% down for value. So, you know, it, it's pretty similar to most asset classes. I think multifamily and industrial may be uh, the worst hit on, you know, decreases in land value, but or in value rather. But again, there is something that's happening right now um, in the land market. And that's landowners are trying to hit the same pricing that was maybe 12 to 24 months ago. And guys like Nerez and Derek are saying no, you know, for their LPs listening. Um, but I, I think in order to actually get to that price, landowners, the ones who are the active side who haven't owned uh, maybe for you know, decades, they're actually figuring out structures in order to maybe get to that event, uh, that higher event. And that's, you know, something that, you know, both these gentlemen were talking about before, which is how do we get to the point of putting in the least amount of equity? Um, when we get to that event point where we can have construction financing. So landowners are trying to figure out ways, and obviously we're helping them underwrite this and navigate this. But I, I think that's how we're going to get through the next 24 months is effectively a partnership between the landowner and the buyer, even though it's not, you know, call it a participatory VTB. It's a non-participatory um, that's, I think, structuring how you will price the land. So you're going to see trades that come out and you're like, wait a second, why is that so high? It's probably because it was written, you know, a long time ago. So I think um, the price may continue to decrease a little bit when you look at a true land value. Um, But for right now, it's about 20%. And, you know, things will
0: change. I'm sure. Yeah.
1: It's hard. I mean, trying to assess the value of land is, is extremely difficult obviously because well, also when... the thing
0: too you you know it doesn't identify the qualitative factors behind it. So, yeah. Jeremiah might say or the market might say it's 20%, but is it 20% with a ton of structure? It's not really calculating in the risk, right? So it might be, you know, it was 200 bucks, now it's 180, but you're giving back 90% paper the top line number looks sexy, but the underlying transaction, there's a lot more risk that the landowner, you know, has to contemplate. Um, So I think that you have to look at it in a holistic fashion that way. Yeah. And that, that is a general number.
3: (laughs) There has been a few transactions that have been, I mean, Derek knows he's he's like, yeah, 60% down, you know, you have some pretty significant prices and you're going to have some transactions. I know about that haven't closed will come out. There'll be, I think, surprises in the market. Right.
1: I Agreed. Interesting. Well, we're we're running close to the end of uh, our time here, but I want to do the same thing I do at the end of the, the the Toronto Under Construction podcast. I have a rapid fire section. So basically, hey, I just hey. I'm going to hit you guys with four uh, uh, questions in a row. Most of them will be real estate related, but basically, just keep your answers to uh, just keep your answers to just a, a, a couple words. Okay. So, Derek, y'all just start out with you. Dallas is uh, uh, apparently considering limitations on investors buying single-family homes. Should Ontario do the same? No. (laughs) Should traditional mortgage lenders be allowed to offer 35 and 40-year mortgages?
2: I mean, it's in our favor, I would say yes, but you you gotta look at the health of the credit market.
1: When you go get your groceries, do you return the car to the rack or you just leave it in the parking spot oh, beside you? The rack
2: oh. every time. you okay. got to have some respect. Okay, I'm just shocked.
1: That's why he's a TFA, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that Doug Ford took bribes to open up the Greenbelt?
2: belt? over to you. Oh, it's over to
1: me, over to me. He said, no, Dougie, That's no. a pass, that's a pass. Bad, okay. Dougie, man. bad. Okay, okay. Nerez, on to you. True or false, in the first quarter of 2022, so going back to, to, to last year at this time, I could have sold 300-unit condominium on Yonge Street with no balconies. True or false? True. Are Toronto's property taxes too low based on the state of our city? No. No? Okay. When you die, will you go with open casket or closed casket? <laughs> <laughs> Open casket. I'm open? pretty sexy, you know. So, yeah. okay. Okay. I mean, look at that. Here.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> in your opinion, what is the most used condo amenity? Uh, the gym. The gym. Okay. Oh, okay. So Jeremiah, we'll, we'll we'll close with you. Will thirty-two thousand new condominium apartments complete in the GTA in 2023? No, absolutely not. That's right. Sh- should the DVP be cl- uh, be told? Be what? Told should there be a toll in the DVP? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Get those nine to fivers. They're not here because of the snow, so we, we can we can make fun of them. Okay. Well, Tax this is, revenue is good. For this. this is a good one. What's in more important for your online dating profile? the <laughs> The picture or the written description. <laughs> Come see on, Jeremiah.
3: the picture. It's
0: picture. <laughs> You're holding us here. Go on, let's go.
1: <laughs>
3: Listen, I'm trying to be not superficial.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Both. Oh, oh, okay, Good answer. Good answer. OK, should MLS, so the realtor multiple listing service, have a comment section so you can leave a comment oh, 100%. on someone's first sale)
3: I don't think I do work all day. I just (laughs) scroll the
2: comments.
3: (laughs) You see those photos and, and you see at the bottom of like a really good post from Six Buzz or something. The guy's saying... I'm just here for the comments. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you'd be That's there for me. the comments. So anyways, again, guys, uh, I appreciate you being on the panel here. And uh, I want to thank everyone that came out. I want a special shout out to, to, to Jay from EY for, for setting this up for me, to Leanne McEwitt for uh, for handling the marketing, and uh, and David for my, in my office for uh, for helping out on, on the questions and, and everything that goes to this event. So again, thank you very much. and uh, Thank you. are we doing?